Welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Talk, Theology for Sojourners. Pilgrim Talk is a weekly podcast devoted to the discussion of the Christian faith for the Christian sojourner as they travel to the heavenly city. I'm Dylan Harrison, and this week we have something different in store for you all. This past Lord's Day being Reformation Day, John spoke at our church on the topic, Living Out Sola Scriptura, a biography of William Tyndale. We felt that this short biographical sketch would be great to share with our listeners and would show the glory of God and the power of His Word. We hope you enjoy. Let me pray for us and we'll begin to look at William Tyndale this morning. Our great God, Lord, we thank you again for another Lord's Day. We thank you for an opportunity to be gathered around your Word, to sing the Gospel, to hear the Gospel preached, and to be encouraged to continue in the faith this morning. God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would be glorified, and I pray that we would be encouraged this morning as we hear about the life and the mission of William Tyndall, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, living sola scriptura, that's what I think about when I think about the life of William Tyndall. Sola scriptura is one of those five solas of the Reformation, scripture alone. And William Tyndall was a man that didn't just believe that in theory, but he lived it. He spent his life on mission seeking to get the scriptures into the language of the people of England. And we're going to see that it even cost him his life. But just to sort of set the stage for you in England around the time of, of William Tyndall's birth, it was a land of, of great spiritual darkness. The sacred scriptures were hidden and made inaccessible to the average layman. Only those who held a clerical office could legally read and interpret the scriptures. The, comp- the people were completely dependent on the clergy to read and interpret scripture for them. But the irony of all this is, the irony is that there was, a no- there was not a single priest in England who could, tr- who could translate a single clause of the Lord's Prayer. And they were to be the ones who were to teach and interpret the scriptures for the people, and yet the priests themselves couldn't even translate the Lord's Prayer. And so all biblical knowledge had been seemingly extinguished from the land, leaving the people in a cloud of spiritual darkness. And it's in the midst of this darkness then that the Lord raised up faithful men such as John Wycliffe, who who is often called the morning star of the Protestant Reformation. He translated the whole Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate. And then there are people like the Lollards, along with John Wycliffe, who would distribute these Bibles across the land, which was was illegal to do. And many of them were put to death and deemed as heretics for doing so. So here's two laws that would have been passed in this time. And Parliament in 1401 passed the law which legalized the burning of heretics at the stake. So if you're the church at the time and you want to Put down, um, put down dissidents and those who are going against you. Well, you just threaten that you're going to burn them at the stake. If you're going to pass out English Bibles, we're going to burn you at the stake. In 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he um, forbid the translating of the Bible into English unless the bishops of the English church gave permission to do so. In fact, in 1519, Many of the Lollards were burned at the stake. Why were they burned at the stake? Because they taught their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Do you, you, you hear that? They were burned at the stake because they wanted to teach their children the Lord's Prayer in their own language. 
And during this time, the, the Protestant Reformation, the echoes of the Protestant Reformation had begun. You heard 1519, they were burned. 1517, Luther has nailed his thesis to the door. And there is wind uh, and rumors about this Protestant Reformation that is happening on the mainland of Europe. And it's coming across the English Channel. And the people of England are starting to hear about it. But though there's talk of Reformation in English, uh, of talk of Reformation in England during this time, the Reformation cry of sola scriptura would not be sufficient to bring English people out of spiritual darkness, for they needed the sacred scriptures translated into their language so that they could read the scriptures for themselves. Because Reformation comes only through the knowledge of the scriptures. And so it's in the midst of this darkness that the Lord raised up a William Tyndall. And Tyndall considered the accessibility and the comprehension of scripture more important than his own life. He was a skilled linguist and scholar. He knew eight languages and he was fluent in, in all of them. And he was a master of Greek and Hebrew. But on, on top of all this, he had an unwavering commitment to the scriptures. So Tyndall's born in 1494, and he is executed as a heretic in 1536. Tyndall's mission caused him to be a fugitive from his own country for the majority of his life. And the Reformation cry, certainly a sola scriptura, and Tyndall lived this cry out through committing his life to the translation of the Bible into English. So let's look at some things of life here. And we'll move through some of these things quicker than others. But first, let's look at sort of the foundation for Tyndall's mission. We look back at Tyndall's life when we see God's providential hand at work. The Lord was pre preparing him both intellectually and spiritually for this mission. Tyndall would go to Oxford Magdalen School in 1506 at age 12. This is like a sort of a preparatory school for then going on and getting your bachelor's degree. Things were a little bit different back then. There was a little bit higher premium on learning. Here he would get sort of his foundations in Latin. Then he would go on at, in 1508. So at the age of 14 and from 1508 to 1512, he would complete a bachelor's of arts at Oxford. Then he would stay at Oxford and he would then pursue a master's, a master's at Oxford. Here's one of the striking things about this period, though. Tyndall was at Oxford for a total of 10 years, and it wasn't until his eighth or ninth year when he was finally authorized to study the Bible. Only after his eighth or ninth year was he authorized by the school to study the Bible. Oxford's policy was to not allow a student the privilege to study theology until after attaining both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And there's more that can be said about this. And um, Lawson does a good job in his book of, of sort of uh, pointing out the significance of this. But basically the idea was like, we will indoctrinate our students with all of these scholastic and high-minded notions and this medieval theology. And then we'll give them the Bible after we've already filled in everything we want them to believe. And now they'll be, be maybe safer to let them read the Bible for themselves. But we actually have uh, pretty good evidence that most likely all throughout this period, Tyndall's meeting with students, students privately, and he is from the Greek New Testament uh, reading and teaching the Bible to them secretly. Then after Oxford, he goes to Cambridge in 1519. 
And Cambridge at this time had sort of become sort of the, the rebel in England. They were allowing the, the teachings of Martin Luther to be talked about and taught. And so Cambridge slowly sort of became the champion of the Reformation. So Tyndall went there. And we, we don't know if he got actually received a degree from there, but he went there to, to, to further his studies and languages and things like that. And it is interesting that in uh, 1520 in Cambridge, there was this small group of scholars that began to meet that we know as the White Horse Inn, or it's often been called Little Germany because it is out of this group of these scholars who met at the White Horse Inn that really many of those men, those theologians and pastors go on to be martyrs for the Reformation in England. And it is very likely that Tyndall would have been there part of this group. So in 1521, Tyndall then, I've, I've got enough learning. I've spent a lot of time learning. I'm going to take a break now from the academy. And he becomes a tutor and a private chaplain for this man named Sir John Walsh. Sir John Walsh was a very prominent man in England. And so what would often happen is Tyndall would find himself uh, at the dinner table in Sir John Walsh's home with many high-ranking priests in the Church of England. And there's this one account, it's my favorite, where he is having dinner in Sir John Walsh's home with this priest. And the priest at the dinner table proclaimed how it was better to go, listen to this, how it was better to go without God's law rather than the Pope's. And Tyndall's response was, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spared, uh, and Tyndall would go on to say about himself, if God would spare him life in many years, then Tyndall would cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than this priest does. Now we're going to see that, that that was Tyndall's clear mission and ambition. And I think he, by God's grace, is successful in doing so. So from here, the last thing we see before Tyndall really begins his mission is he's trying to abide by the laws of the land. So he serves in John Walsh's home for quite some time. And then in 1523, he goes ahead and he goes to the, the, the sort of top dog in the church of the time, the Bishop of London. His name is Tunstall. And he goes to him and he asks him for permission to begin to translate the Bible into English. Again, to remind you, if you were to do this, if you were to just say, oh, I'm a master in Greek, I'm a master in Hebrew, and I'm going to start translating the Bible into English, to do so without the church's authority would have automatically condemned you as a heretic and you would have been put to death. So he goes to Tunstall and Tunstall, what do you know, refuses. And it's not, uh, there's, there's probably more here to it than I was able to find out, but uh, at least one reason why Tunstall refuses, he's, he, he's so afraid that in allowing Tyndall to translate the Bible into English, that it would cause turmoil in England. You, that, that was one of his motivations. But in the midst of a no, Tyndall found a divine yes. And so Tyndall would depart from England, never to return, in order to begin his work that would shake the nation of England. So let's begin to look at his mission now. He's, I call it the printing press on fire. So from the age of 30 on, Tyndall would live as a fugitive as he translated the Bible illegally. And so for the next 12 years, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of shipwrecks, the printing press would be on fire as Tyndall worked diligently to translate the scriptures. And he would even write a few theological works along the way. So his first edition of the English 
uh, of the New Testament English. Uh, happens in 1526. In 1524, he arrives in Germany and he actually sits underneath the teaching of Martin Luther for some time. He goes to Wittenberg, he sits underneath Luther, and most likely Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, who was also a master in New Testament or in, in Greek, would have been a great help and an aid to Tyndall in helping him understand uh, the New Testament's uh, Greek. He then goes to, in 1525 to Cologne with his amanuensis, William Roy, and there they begin their translation work. They actually begin to print the New Testament, but they only make it to Matthew 22 before there's a raid and they've got to get out of there. So there he's constantly, and why does the raid happen? Because one of the print workers was drunk and he had loose lips and accidentally told, hey, I got this guy Tyndall and we're printing this English Bible. And so they got to get out of there. So the, the, it stopped short. But in 1526, they, they go to Worms. You ever heard of the Diet of Worms with Luther, Luther same place? And he finishes his uh, translation, the first edition of the New Testament in English. And finally, the English had the knowledge of God's word and the palm of their hands and their native common tongue. But there's going to be opposition. So there's two, two key things that the Church of England does now that they know that this edition is out. The first is in 1526, they begin to confiscate all of Tyndall's Bibles and they criminalize the possession and the distribution of these Bibles. In fact, Tunstall, remember the same evil dude from before, preached a message against Tyndall and he burnt several of the Bibles publicly. Well, that wasn't working. So then 1527, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, bought all of Tyndall's Bibles. Oh, good. Well, we can't stop the possession and distribution. So we're going to use our wealth and we're going to purchase all the Bibles and then we'll burn them or get rid of them. The irony is that then gave Tyndall the funds he needed to begin to work on a second edition. So again, that, 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 that famous slogan from Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. So he is on the run still. Tyndall's on the run. But while he's on the run, he is, he's writing books. So in 1526, he makes it to Antwerp, which is modern-day Belgium, and he writes this book called The Parable of the Wicked Mammon. If you were to read this book, you would see that basically this is Tyndall's defense of justification by faith alone. So he is, he is writing that out. That is, he believes scripture, that's what scripture teaches. And so he is there, he is uh, in Antwerp, he has to flee because... His enemies once again sought to capture him and bring him back to England to be tried as a heretic. Then in 1528, in Marburg, he writes, The Obedience of a Christian Man. And the interesting thing about this book is, Tyndall is on the run uh, for his life from the authorities, and yet it is in this book he calls Christians to submit to authorities. Obviously, Tyndall would give the caveat, yeah, but if they're trying to keep you from doing what God would have you to do or what is clearly uh, sinful, then do it anyways. But it is interesting that he would feel the need to write that book, even as he clearly has found, I think, biblical grounds in not submitting to the authorities um, as he's on the run. But it is while he's in Antwerp that he finishes translating the whole Pentateuch from Hebrew to English. Now listen, uh, there were very few men at the time who had a mastery of Greek, but to have a mastery of Greek and Hebrew 
uh, is it's amazing, am amazing reality in that day. He finishes it. And once again, he has to flee for his life. And while he's fleeing, there's a shipwreck and he loses it all. The whole, the whole translation, the, the, all that's gone, he lost all, uh, a lot of his books that he was using for the translation and he lost the whole translation of the Pentateuch. And so though the loss was devastating, the eternal weight of what he was seeking to accomplish far outweighed the work of restarting much of his Old Testament translation. That's like a perspective there. To lose that, the amount of work. Now, now listen, he's about, to, he's about to translate it again with someone's help this time, and it took him 10 months. How long do you think it took him without the help of another scholar? So after the shipwreck, Tyndall goes to Hindenburg, and there he runs into his old classmate, Miles Coverdale, who would also, who would also, uh, it's called the Coverdale Bible. He would go on to do his own translation into English. But there, him and Miles finished the Pentateuch in December of 1529, and it took them 10 months. Well, England is still trying their best to get a hold of this heretic, Tyndall, who is causing havoc in England now. And so they hire an assassin. Dude, this stuff is awesome, right? Hollywood's got nothing of this. They hire assassin. His name is Thomas More, and he's been hired to assassinate Tyndall. And uh, he more published a work entitled A Dialogue Concerning Heresies. And in this work, he accused Tyndall of being the captain of the English heretics, a new Judas. And he used a lot more imaginative names throughout that work. But Moore's claim was that anyone who rejected the teachings of Rome was a heretic. And all Tyndall says is he's catching word of this. All he says in response, basically, is that trust must be placed in the sacred scriptures alone, not in the church. For the scriptures are infallible and the church is not. And anything less than this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So the attacks on Tyndall continue to come and Tyndall does not flinch. Remind you, Tyndall's confidence in his courage and his boldness is not because that's just the kind of guy he was, but his confidence and his courage came from his unshakable conviction that authority alone rests in the sacred scriptures. And that drove his life. That shaped his life. So when opposition came, when great loss came, when he lost his translations, he was so committed to soul of scripture that shaped everything. All opposition fell along the way. All the hardship fell that were so small and compared to the sacred scriptures. Now, Tyndall uh, was in the house of a chaplain named uh, John Rogers, and, and he was back in Antwerp again. And Tyndall taught and convinced Rogers of Reformed doctrines, and Rogers himself would go on to translate and finish his own English Bible in 15. 37. It was called the Matthew Bible. And Roger's Bible was a compilation of Tyndall and Coverdale's work so that the whole Old and New Testament was translated into English. So the historical books are, are most of the Old Testament. The historical books, the Pentateuch, Jonah, and, uh, and a few others. Then the second edition of the New Testament. He finishes the second edition of the New Testament, uh, Greek New Testament in 1534, eight years, just eight years after his first edition. That's, that's amazing. 
This isn't just like, I misspelled a few, misspelled a few things, but he makes over 5,000 edits. Now, it's not that he's changing the word of God. I don't want you to hear that, but Tyndall has progressed so much in its understanding of the Greek that he can then go back and translate even more faithfully from Greek to English. So he makes over 5,000 edits. Each book of the, of the New Testament had an introduction at the beginning of it that Tyndall wrote down to help people understand the book. And it was filled with cross-references and explanation notes. Tyndall went on to go ahead and do a third uh, edition in the winter of 1534, but certainly his, his most masterful edition where he made the most uh, edits was his second edition. So let's get to the end of his life here and let's look at just a few points of application. Hendel's finally caught through really betrayal. Henry Phillips was blackmailed by the church and deceived Tyndall. Phillips had infiltrated Tyndall's inner circle and then gave Tyndall the sort of Judas kiss, which led him right into his captor's hands. But the fugitive, I'm sorry, the fugitive for over a decade was finally apprehended. But here's an amazing part of, of this. Tyndall's work on the historical books had escaped. And there's, there's, we don't know why, but it seems that either John Rogers, most likely John Rogers, was able to get that stuff out of there and keep it. And we're going to see the significance of that after Tyndall's death. So Tyndall was held for, he was held for over a year in the castle of Vilvord, which was an impenetrable, impenetrable fortress while awaiting trial. And he, even during this time, Tyndall wrote, faith alone justifies before God. And in a letter from prison, Tyndall spoke of the brutal prison conditions, but this one plea in his letter was, or his one plea in his letter was that they would permit him to have his Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary to pass time as he studied. That's the only thing he wanted. It is said by John Fox that Tyndall, while in prison, converted the keeper, his daughter, and other members of the keeper's household. The damp, dark, drafty prison cell could not extinguish Tyndall's blaze for the gospel. Tyndall in his trial was accused of numerous offenses. The one most revealing was the accusation that he preached justification by faith alone. We need to condemn this man as a heretic because he believes that faith alone in Christ alone is the way any man or woman is justified. So we need to kill him as a heretic. And finally, October 6th, 1536, he was hung and then incinerated by an explosion of gunpowder. And in Tyndall's final moments, the last words he spoke were, Lord, open the eye, open the king of England's eyes. And Tyndall's dying prayer was answered. In that same year of his death, an unknown English Bible was dispersed throughout the land of England. The Coverdale Bible was finished in 1535, a year before his death, and the Matthew Bible in 1537 were printed. And less than a year after his death, Oliver Cromwell and Thomas Cranmer um, who were, uh, Thomas Cranmer, who was part of the White Horse Inn, convinced the King of England, Henry VIII, to approve the publication of an official English Bible for the people of England. And then in 1538, the, the king decreed that a Latin and English Bible was to be placed in every church across the land of England. And so following, actually following Tyndall's death, we can see this in, in history, a flood of English Bibles just, just cover the whole land. And truly Tyndall's bold claim 
came to pass that the plowboy now had access to the scriptures in which he could read, study, live, and proclaim. So let's look at just three, as we sort of wrap up here, three results of Tyndall's mission. Three results of Tyndall's mission. First, Tyndall sort of is the instrumental cause. He is like the final instrument that began the English Reformation. That had already begun over on the mainland in Europe and now had begun to spread like wildfire through England. As I said before, Reformation cannot occur without sola scriptura and sola scriptura cannot be lived out without knowledge of the word of God. True Reformation always flows from the word of God. Not only is Tyndall the father of the English Reformation, but he's also the father of the English Bible. We already know, I already noted two other prominent English Bibles, the Coverdale and the Matthew Bible. Both Bibles relied heavily, if not on the majority of Tyndall's work. Both Rogers and Coverdale worked with and were influenced by Tyndall. Check this out. Furthermore, nine-tenths of the New Testament and the 1611 King James Version were Tyndall's work. One man, nine-tenths. Also, half the Old Testament in the King James Version was Tyndall's as well. Therefore, the translators of the King James Version merely took over and finished Tyndall's work for him. Tyndall truly did give the world the English Bible. So after darkness came light, Tyndall was a man separated uh, before time began for this divine mission. And through the spiritual climate, though the spiritual climate was dark upon Tyndall's entrance into the world, the spiritual climate radically changed upon, uh, upon Tyndall's exit from the world. Tyndall was a man that had an unquenchable zeal for the scriptures and for the gospel that led him to death so that his countrymen may have the knowledge of the scriptures before them. Truly, Tyndall's life lived out sola scriptura. So that's my challenge, and that's my question for us today. How does Tyndall's life call us to reflect on our own love and zeal for God's work? We love to declare sola scriptura in today's Reformation Day, but do we live like sola scriptura is true? I think of the great sacrifice of the Lawlers. I mean, we have family worship in our homes and we teach our children the great truths of the scriptures with no fear of being put to death. And certainly there's other kind of persecutions that we face, but none of us face persecution just for merely having a possession of God's word in our language in our homes. Tyndall gave his life for sola scriptura. And so I guess what I'm asking us is how do we view the great, the great benefit we have where we have multiple English Bibles in our homes and we often barely read them or open them. The other thing that I think Tyndall calls us to consider is the fact that there are still many nations today who do not have the Bible in their own language. And there's great uh, ministries out there like, uh, the, uh, it's named after Tyndall, I, can't, I think it's called the Tyndall Translators or something, who are carrying on Tyndall's legacy and seeking to to raise up uh, uh, men uh, who can translate the Bible and take it to these, late, to these nations. Um, so we, we have a great gift that we have been given to live in the time in which we live, to have not only the Bible, but so many resources that can help us study the Bible. And yet we often take them for granted and we often ignore them. And I think William Tyndall's legacy, not a, not a perfect man, he was a mere man. But I think his love for the scriptures ought to, 
ought to spark in us a love for the scriptures as well as we continue to seek to be faithful to the Lord's mission at this church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, uh, we thank you that we are not the first Christians that you have called yourself. We are not the first church. Lord, we are thankful for church history, how it shows us men and women who have gone before us, who are mere men and mere women like us, full of weakness, full of sin, full of frailties, but yet average men and women who you raise up to do great things for you. Lord, we're thankful for the life of William Tyndall. We're thankful for his resolve and his conviction concerning your word and the necessity of it being translated so the people in his nation might be able to read it for themselves. And Lord, I thank you that we now are benef benefactors of that. We benefit and we have the English Bible in our hands and, and so many different formats and, and versions and forms. And Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we have taken that for granted. I pray where we have elevated other things above your word. And I pray that we too would have a, a zeal and a confidence and a conviction and boldness in the word of God. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Pilgrim Talk. And once again, we'd encourage you to visit us on Facebook. You can search Theology for Sojourners. That is the word for F-O-R. And again, if you found this episode helpful or you know someone that might benefit from it, go ahead and share it with your friends. 